When I first started reading this in my early 20s, it was all about how epic it was to go up the mountain. I was at a stage where I was like, yeah, I'm totally willing to give up three fingers to summit Mount Everest. That, <laughs> that, that's how the book makes you feel, right? The more I read it now, it's a lot less about the actual mountain. It's about how they're using it as a way to sort whatever shit they have going on in life. Well, I, I think some of it is we've gone through these life stages. We've moved, we've married, we've loved, we've lost. We're not spring chickens anymore. Uh, you know, we you, man. <laughs> <laughs> Hey Ryan, you know what's better than climbing Mount Everest? Uh, not climbing Mount Everest. It's like you get me, Ryan. I hope our tender podcasting relationship never has to take another abrupt summer hiatus. Your comics complete me, Ramen. This week, we're reading Summit of the Gods, a manga series by Hiro Taniguchi, based on a 1998 novel. Hey, Ramen? Yeah, what's up, Brian? Uh, so this book is out of print, and it is really expensive online. Can't you get it from the library? Uh, I could, but then I'd have to go outside and we'd no longer be quarantined to comics. Dude, we've talked about this. I mean, what the fuck? Why are you telling me this now? Can't you just do what you normally do? I promised I wouldn't do that again, Ramen. I've been letting too many homeless people on fire and taking their money. And, you know, half the time I end up burning half the money. So there's nothing to take. I have to really kind of get my process straight. In any event, it's just it's just not something that's cool anymore. I'm not going to go back to that life. I just won't. Well, it's clear to me that you are not committed to this podcast. You're dead to me, Ryan. Goodbye. Oh, now, wait a minute. I, you know, I've sacrificed a lot for this podcast. Do you know how many people have died? The foundation of bones on which this entire podcast is based? Do you know how I've had to debase myself with the scripts I've been made to read the drivel I've been subjected to? And for you to rob me of a chance to read a book translated from Japanese. Ramen, what the hell? Something. There's going to be a reckoning for this. You're not going to shut the door on me, Ramen. You're not. Oh, man. I thought he'd never leave. Hey, Francois. Bonjour, Ramen. Hello. Why, it's friend of the pod and my favorite Frenchman by way of Montreal, New York, and London, Francois Brugere. What's shaking, brother? Hi, goes, man. Just uh, watching the wheels on the tuk-tuk go round and round, round and round, all through the town. I'm Ramen Segel. And I am not Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes whose likelihood of pronouncing all these Japanese and Nepalese names is about as likely as us summoning Everest. Or summoning the deep sense of longing and loss for old friends passed by. Whew, that's deep. Yep. This week, <laughs> this week we're reading The Summit of the Gods, or Kamigami no Itadaki, an early 2000s manga by Jiro Taniguchi, based on a novel and script by Baku Yumenakura. I am so sorry for my butchering of those names. You did call it, uh, though. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the series traces several climbers' journeys across decades around the world, from the European Alps to the peaks of Japan to the Himalayas of Nepal and Tibet, all bookended by the greatest summit of all, Everest. 
The story is told from the modern perspective of Fukamachi, a journalist who finds a camera which may change the history of mountaineering, as it may belong to the famed climber George Mallory, who went missing climbing Everest, which history shows as being first summited by Sir Edmund Hillary some 30 years after Mallory's disappearance. At the center of all this is a mysteriously obstinate climber, Joji Habu, or Binkasap, as he is known to the Nepalese Sherpa community. The critically acclaimed series was actually recently adapted to an animated feature that debuted at the Cannes Film Festival in France, which is not why I invited my favorite Frenchman, Francois, to the pod. What? <laughs> it's actually because years ago when Francois and I first met and he learned of my love of comics, Francois, in his Tintin loving, too cool for school demeanor, would not stop talking about how good some of the gods was. But... Once I finally picked it up, I could not put it down, and I've been looking for an excuse to pick it up again, just like this conversation with an old friend. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> All right, Francois. So before we start gushing about how amazing some of the gods is, uh, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about where your tastes have been across comics and pop culture. What were you reading growing up before we met, before you discovered some of the gods? And honestly, what have you been reading since we last connected in New York years ago? Yeah, you talked about the fact that I'm French. I, I grew up a little bit over the place, but I fell in love with comics on the on the French side of things, starting mm -hmm. with all the classics, the Tintins, the Asterix. Yeah, all of those pretty classics. And then when I grew older, 13, Jeff Maynard. So those are the classic things I, I grew up reading. I actually never got into all the Marvels and, and all the American side of things. And I have to say, I've stayed pretty, pretty on the European side of comic. And when you asked me, when you asked me the question, I was like, what, I'm going to look at what I've been reading lately. And I find that I, there's a theme going on, which is very like historical comics, very inspired. So there's a, a whole bunch of sh a series called uh, Once Upon a Time in France. It's absolutely fantastic. I don't know if, it, if it's been translated into English, but it's basically the story of a Jewish metal dealer during World War II and how he placed yep. both sides of the resistance and, and the Nazi and basically how complicated that character is. It's pretty fantastic. And some stuff like Katanga or The Last Atlas, which I'll highly recommend to you as well, which is a pretty strong metaphor for uh, French occupation in Algeria at some point. So I've been I've been reading intellectual stuff. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's the way to put it. Well, one thing I tell people all the time, and you clearly get it, is comics does not equal superheroes, right? Comics is a medium for storytelling, just like television, film, radio, podcasting. And yeah, I grew up on the superhero stuff, but I've gone through like multiple phases of being disenfranchised. And that's something Ryan and I talk about a lot. It's like, in superheroes, nothing ever changes. And there's so much good, be it not just outside of the United States, but even in the United States, good nonfiction, fiction, independent storytelling that isn't around the genre of superheroes. You mentioned a lot of the nonfiction stuff, and that's what I loved about Summon of the Gods. It threads the needle of, I'm assuming, a fictional account about uh, a historical thing that happened. George Mallory was a guy. I'm not sure if he actually disappeared. But um yeah, there's so much good nonfiction stuff. And the Japanese do it well. They were the first to do it. Oh, they're amazing at it. Yeah, you ride around the train and everyone's reading a manga. And it very little of it is Dragon Ball Z and Shonen Jump. Yep. Uh, Just to build on that, the, the thing is, when you grow up, you're looking for more epic things. And like uh, 13, which is, a, I don't know, 25 comic book series, is pretty much the same foundation as Born. And it's very epic. It's all about intense action. 
And the more I grow up, the more I find myself enjoying the, the gray areas, the nuances, the complicated and, and conflicted characters. Yeah, that's where I'm going right now. It's interesting as we're talking about this, not to bring it back to superheroes. I don't know if you're watching any of the Disney Plus shows, but the show, the show Loki just finished. And it's funny, the mainstream fan base, a lot of them are like, ah, oh, that was boring. It was just people sitting around in the room talking in the finale. And I was like, that was the best part. <laughs> like, no spoilers, but like the last episode is three characters where they've built up all of these kind of character dynamics and tensions having an argument in a room, a philosophical argument about what to do, what not is a Hitler as a baby argument. And I don't know, there, there's a lot to be said about dialogue. And to bring it back to some of the gods, this is a very, I don't want to say it's dialogue heavy, but it's narratively heavy, if that makes sense. Yep. It, there's a lot of narration of stories of things that happened with a handful of like flash forwards to the present. And there were moments I remember the first time I was reading where I was having to train my mind to slow down and read this comic again. But I found myself older, gosh, 15, like how long have we known each other? 15 years later or so, like yeah. 10, 10, it like really relishing it. So I got to ask how I, I, let's get into it, man. Like so just reading this book, it, it was like climbing Everest. At first, it was a slog and it was daunting, but it was just one of those satisfying things like a mountain. You just do it because it's there. And I guess you've read the series more than a few times now across periods of your life. How have your feelings changed since you first read it? I've lost count about how many times I've read this. <laughs> I probably <laughs> pick it up every year or so at the very least. It's <clears throat> like I said, when I first started reading this, I was probably in my early 20s. And it was all about how epic it was to go up the mountain. And, and like you said, the narration is phenomenal. Like I, I was at a stage where I was like, yeah, I'm totally willing to give up three fingers to summit Mount Everest. That, <laughs> that, that's how the book makes you feel, right? You, you wake up and you're like, oh, I'm not in a tent at like 8,000 meters above, above water level. It's like, no. The more I read it now, it's a lot less about the actual mountain. It's about the relationship between the two characters. It's about how the mountain is basically a pretext to banish their demons and, and how they're using it as a way to sort whatever shit they have going on in life. And, and when I read it last week, I was like, wow, I actually care less about the mountain climbing, but I am deep into the Habu Joji character and how tormented that guy is. And how funny enough, by meeting this young guy who's on his side trying to figure out who he is, they actually get a better understanding of who they are as human beings. And I'm like, wow. I've, I've grown up. Maybe I've become <laughs> old, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think some of it is uh, we've literally read more shit. It's like with tastes in coffee, wine, beer, whiskey. We've tasted a lot more over the years since that first reading, right? But then in life too, like we're not spring chickens anymore. <laughs> and we've gone through these life stages. We've moved, we've married, we've loved, we've lost. And these characters have, and I think we were in the text chain as we were talking about doing this, we were talking about how when we first read it, we related more to Fukumachi, the young guy on this path of discovery. He finds out this really cool thing and he keeps digging and digging and ultimately climbing and climbing. And I think that's who we were when we first read this book. And then I found myself on the second reading as an older parent, the Fukumachi stuff when 
he's longing for his ex-girlfriend. I'm like, yeah, I remember that, but I don't relate to that. Let's let's move oh, on. Probably let's... not. <laughs> yeah. He's like, come on, man, grow up. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, quit spending pages talking about this girl. Get back to the mountain. There's this guy. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because uh, obviously we met w- when we used to work in marketing and, and we knew a lot of like consumer understanding and uh, ethnographic work. And a few years ago, we did this piece of work on life stages and, and what people go through. Uh, and I remember the 20s are basically about exploring and it's about trying to figure stuff out. What is it that you like? And then when you reach some point like late 20s or early 30s, or if you live in New York City, like late 30s. <laughs> then uh, what ends up happening is you, you don't go for quantity anymore. It's like you've figured out what you like and you go after that and you have a lot more certainties about life. And you're willing, and, you're willing to do the work and the trial and error to get to what you want because you don't want to waste your time on shit you don't want. Exactly. And, and when I read this book again, I was like, what, this is a perfect, absolutely perfect way of describing that and how those two characters are at a completely different life stage. But they're both at a stage where they're still moving to another place in terms of who they are. And maybe Habujoji is not. He's just more on the like, my life's accomplishment. But Fukumashi is clearly like absolutely confused. And, and, and women, basically, the, the two women that are put in this book, maybe three, they're basically just there as a metaphor for where they are in life, right? So, yeah, it doesn't yeah. pass the Bechtold test for sure. But Definitely what I would... not. I looked at it and I was like, oh, God, if there's any feminist listening to this, like, don't pick up this book. It's a story but, about well, dudes. Well, you can cycle. You could replace. I, I was about to say you can replace the dudes with women and you'd be OK. But only men are this stupid, because let's talk about the second <laughs> character in the book. We've talked about the young guy, Fukamachi, trying to find his way in the world to quote the lyrics of the Cheers theme song. <laughs> but with Habu. He's a little bit older, probably about a decade, decade and a half older yeah, than Fukumachi. Early 50s, right? Late, late, late 40s? Yeah, yeah. And, and they show the stories of his youth, though, right? In, uh, not just as a teenager, learning, to, discovering climbing, but in his 20s and 30s and some of the foolish things he do. But I would argue, rightly or wrongly, Habu has this radical self-actualization early on in life where he's like, yeah, I don't need anything else. Fuck all this. It's all a means to an end so I can climb. And he literally says that multiple times in the book in so many words, like, and even his stubbornness, like, it's not climbing if you're not the first person to do it. And it's not about fame and pride. It's about this deep longing in himself that I can only do it this way or life is not worth living. And that's his purpose. And I actually want to ask you, I'm not a climber. I've known some climbers and they're really passionate about it. But Habu takes it to the next level because they show Habu against mountaineering societies. We're like the bros who like to climb and whatever. But he's just like, screw all that nonsense. It's me and the mountain and everything else is on the side, including people I'm climbing with. Yeah, it's funny. I I don't do a lot of climbing either, but my family comes from bottom of the French Alps. He's this guy is like as as much of an extremist as you can as you can have, right? It's like he has this one radical approach about climbing or life, which for him are straight line, the (laughs) The straight line, (laughs) straight line. And it's like, and that's it. But from the experiences of talking to people, I'd say you, you will find in that world and probably like in most circles, even beyond mountaineering, you'll find a couple of people who are super extreme. There's one book that I was, I was thinking about when I read this actually, which was published in 1941, which is called first Mm -hmm. on the rope. 
mm-hmm. which is a it's a story about a, a guide on uh, Mount Blanc in France or mm-hmm. Italy, depending who wants to claim it. And basically, it's pretty much the same thing. It's how the guy is all about climbing and finds absolutely no meaning in life the second his foot is off the mountain. So I'm guessing there's something in there. And actually, funny enough, I have probably more friends who are into boating. And they'll tell you the same thing, which is like, once you've crossed like an ocean alone on a sailboat, they're like in the winter with no oxygen (laughs) (laughs) yeah no supplies fishing yeah no it's basically tough for them to find it's so intense it's really tough for them to find something that that has taste if i can put it that way and and to be fair like the more you read that book the more you get into it with that character is like you you think about him as being a complete idiot sometimes but you actually really understand him it's really weird I understand him, and I think the thing I can't relate to Habu is that how far he takes it. And I'm a firm believer. I've actually continued to have this experience with pop culture, with life and parenthood of you actually want to have those experiences where you have some of the best experiences because it puts everything else into radical focus. I'll use a terrible example, two terrible examples, The Wire, a TV show, right? I'd watched a lot of TV. And then I watched The Wire, and everything I watched after seemed really, really trivial, right? And it caused me to seek out, it's like I'd almost hit a different step change in what I expected from television. Or if I was going to watch garbage or fun stuff, I was like, okay, well, that's my silly Star Wars show. I can watch it, and it's silly. It's not going to nourish me the way The Wire did. And even, I don't watch a lot of TV. In fact, for years, I've not watched a lot of TV. I've been reading a lot of books, riding the train, raising my kids, etc. Minus a few like guilty pleasure shows and movies, like comic book movies. but. I missed out on a handful of shows, and two of them were Watchmen and Warrior. And after my recent son was born, there were a lot of sleepless nights where you're holding him, and I had my phone. So I watched these two shows pretty intensely over the course of two weeks. And then I was like, okay, I need a third show. And I decided to pick up some comic book show, Modoc. And I was like, this is trash. I don't want this. I actually don't watch this. And recently with the kid, similar with video games, I haven't played games for like 10 years. A friend loaned me their console and I played some of the greatest games that have been made in the past five years. And then I got some other like, you know, cheap Star Wars game. And I was like, this is trash. Why would you bother with this trash when you can have the best? And I guess the the parallel to that and similar with life, once you've had a great weekend with your wife and kids, going to a bar with your friends is dumb. It's a frivolous thing, right? And I feel like that's what Habu Fukumashi is in the path of discovering it when he tries to climb Everest. And he comes back from it and he fails. He's literally obsessed. Like all he can do is run and he has the great girlfriend, but he's trying to come back to that thing or something at that level. And Habu, I think, realized that early on. I don't know. Sorry, I've rambled a lot. But have you had that experience with once you've had the really good shit, you can't go back to like the mediocre or the superficial surface level stuff? Yeah. Oh, totally. Like just talk about like clubbing. Like, oh my God, just don't tell me clubbing. Like since I've been like 23, <laughs> it's like, please don't do that to me. It feels so artificial, right? It's right. like, does it feed your soul? No, like not in one bit. If anything, like if you take me to a club now, I'd probably drink alone in a corner and like depress <laughs> at what's going on in front of me. Um, I've literally taken comic books to bars <laughs> and sat at the bar and done that. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's, that's a little extreme for me. But yeah, it's just, it's, it's what it is. And 
same way that your circle of friends, uh, they generally get to be smaller when you grow up because you've sorted it out. It, it totally makes sense. And kids add a, a, like another layer of perspective on top of that, right? Which is funny enough because you look at Habu Joji in the book and you end up realizing he has two kids mm-hmm. and they could not be less important in the story. I think they show up on like <laughs> three pages. He doesn't even They're like the kids in an them. episode of Downton Abbey. Yeah, they just show up <laughs> and they get they're, taken they're away. And, but it feels like for him, they're just there, like they happened. But it's like they mean jack shit, absolute like jack shit. It's like they are human beings that are a consequence of something. I don't think this man has any sexuality. I think this guy's like purely asexual and basically just like climbs mountains. That's the only thing that turns him on. Well, here's what I say. I actually don't think he is in the sense that he is a human animal. And so when I hate to say a woman presents herself when a because he's not going to the clubs, going to the bars to pick up women. But when through something of his life, and it's literally his two girlfriends that are depicted, I think, in like volume three and volume five, one is the younger sister of a kid he got killed on a climbing mission. And he gets to know her and it's a comforting thing. And he just falls into the habit. He's a he's a human man with needs. So they clearly start sleeping together. But the mountain always comes first. And then fast forward to him ultimately going back to Nepal, letting his visa expire and trying to figure out how to summer at Everest. He falls in with his Sherpa and starts hanging out with the Sherpa's daughter, right? Because she's always there and teaching him Nepalese. And again, the human attractive yeah. woman, I'm an attractive man. But to your point, it is secondary, maybe even like whatever, tertiary, tertiary to the mountain. Everything else is in service oh. of the mission. Yeah, it's like Maslow, like 1.0. It's literally as <laughs> physiological as that. It's like there's absolutely nothing else. So I want to come back to climbing, though. What's and you and we can get back to the book, but like so neither of us are real mountain climbers. But I guess what have been your experiences? Have you had any meaningful experiences in the mountains doing anything? Ah, Trekking. I'd say uh, trekking is as good as I've gotten. I've never actually done any like rock climbing. So I've done a couple of, obviously being from close to the Alps, I've done a couple of summits around there. And then there's a few volcanoes in Guatemala, but that's about it. Like I've never been higher than 3000 meters, which you can translate that into feet if you want to. Was that like (laughs) 9,000, 10,000 feet? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, rule rule of threes, rule of threes. What's, you keep doing it though, right? It's funny. It's like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not about to risk life and limb to climb Everest nah. it's not on my list just like going to space is not on my list but yeah trekking uh, trekking is probably the best word for it it's you're not using equipment you're just walking for a long time and you're going uphill <laughs> and I but I think feel like guys like you and I keep doing it and I, I've been thinking about why do I do it right uh, you mentioned boating like I learned how to sail uh, a few years ago not because I want to ride a sailboat because there's a community sailing club and I could just like get on the water and clear my mind with the wind and the water and this it's the same thing with climbing the couple of experiences I've had it's sometimes you go with other people but you instantly you start to separate out or even if you're walking with someone or trekking with someone you're left alone with your thoughts for much of it because there's nothing to do but climb and it's a submersive experience is what I found, right? Yeah. I did. The thing is, like, I feel like when you're, when you're trekking, it's like your body almost gets on auto mode and you're left alone with your thoughts and, and mm-hmm. yourself. And that's what's fantastic about it. It's like it's a therapy session for like nine hours where you just do a little bit of like inward thinking. Meditative, your point, right. Yeah, you could go with 10 people. And at some point after like, I don't know, an hour, like all 10 people are just going to be walking next to each other 
And yeah, because you've already had all the conversations. You can't keep talking yeah. about TV shows and kids and whatever the whole time. Yeah, exactly. Plus, it actually it takes a little bit of a, a toll in terms of breathing and, and exercise. Mm-hmm. So you're focused on that. And then it's only once you reach the summit that everybody's like, oh, my God, this was amazing. And it's like, yeah, we didn't talk about anything. But it's like you still went through almost like the same process. And most people generally tend to, to I don't know, feel the same thing, except obviously if you hate walking, that's really not going to be your thing. <laughs> yeah, I found definitely have not had some of the extreme experiences, but it, there is the I enjoy hiking and I like going back to some of the same parks and preserves. but there are some treks and climbs that I've done that you've done it once and I don't need to do it again. Right. So there's a saying. So when I went to Japan between grad school and working, I had some, a friend of the pod, Josh was living in Japan and teaching English. And he was like, come visit. Here's a few things you should do. We'll go party in Tokyo, but you should go climb Mount Fuji. And I was like, cool. So you're going to go with me. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. I did that when I got here. In fact, there's a saying, the wise man climbs Fuji once, the fool twice. And and Mount Fuji isn't a hard mountain to climb. It's literally just a trail and a trek, and it takes eight to nine hours. But you do it, and you start at seven at night, and you get there at like four or five in the morning to watch the sunrise. And it's this really intense experience of never mind the climb and staying up it's i gotta get up to see the sunrise like i gotta make to the top by the sunrise but it's being trapped with your thoughts for eight hours and like the only other the more it's a a silly one but i was in a desert in jordan um and my my buddy and i were camping with some bedouins and my buddy got up early and he was like i want to go hike and see the sunrise and i slept in a little i was like i'll follow you and i felt like fukamachi in that moment as i was rereading um the chapter where fukamachi decides to follow habu climbing the mountain it reminded me of that moment in wadi realm with will where i was like okay well uh, i don't want to be alone with these bedouins (laughs) i'm gonna come follow you I, i i see you i see you a couple hundred meters out i'll follow you and will kept climbing and he kept climbing and it wasn't a mountain it was just like a big i don't know giant rock but there were moments where i knew will was ahead of me and there were like some pretty dangerous things where i had to do a couple of jumps and do some again like rock climbers be like it's super easy but for me like a scared kid from alabama in the middle of the desert with like <laughs> no one around <laughs> it was these fukumachi like moments i feel like that was one of the most harrowing mo- i mean there's a lot of character arcs that were harrowing but the moment where Fukumachi decides that he is going to do what Habuda is doing, which is as they shout in manga style, like climb yeah. the north base of Everest in the winter without oxygen. <laughs> so they do that like two times in a row. And I, I just laughed out loud. But that was probably the most dramatic moment of the book because he's trapped in his own head. He can't see Habu. Habu's off in the distance. Clearly yeah. like, and Habu is like, I'm not going to interact with you because I have to do this climb solo. You can try to catch me escaping is what he says. God, that moment just gave me chills. That whole. Yeah, I I love that chapter. I love the fact when he gets up in the morning following that and he's like, okay, I've done my bit. I need to go down. I should go down. It's going to get dangerous if I get up any higher. And you can see like his body actually going towards the mountain instead of going down. And the guy's (laughs) basically like, what the fuck are you doing? You moron. But it's, kind of that feeling where he's like despite every like rational ounce that i have in my body i'm still gonna go up there 
it's pretty cool. But what you're saying, it, it makes me think about I, something I haven't thought about before, but like the title of the book, The, the Summit of the Gods. You what know, is it I'm in French? Because you, you read it in French. What is the title in French? Uh, it's ex- literal translation, like uh, Le Sommet de Dieu. So okay. exactly the same thing, as, as clearly you've been able to tell from my French. Yeah, no, it's, I, I find that the whole thing about mountain climbing, and I'm not a religious man at all, but if there's anything about it, it's so spiritual. And, and we talked about a little bit, right, about like the feeling and, and, and looking inwards for you or towards you. And I actually really like the title of that book because of that, because it's not about how epic it is. Yes, it's like the closest peak to heaven or whatever you want yeah. to call it, but it's actually about a real deep knowledge of self that's what they go through and it's like the most spiritual journey that they can find to go and to your point like if you want to go climb just to catch the sunrise or if you want to go climb just to like go see something unique i feel like that's what you're doing as well mm-hmm. like i remember going to uh, to chical i don't know if you about chical it's it's actually where they shot a star wars it's like mayan temples in the middle of the guatemalan forest and mm-hmm. and we did pretty much the same thing we went there at like four in the morning pitch dark rushed to like the farthest temple in the park climbed it with my wife and managed to get there just to watch the sunrise above the clouds on top of the tropical forest and like the feelings you get at that moment it's it's almost undescribable but there's a sense of inner peace that's absolutely phenomenal what's interesting is the inner peace isn't because you're seeing the sunrise at the top of the mountains on top of the tropical forest that's part of it. But if I came in in my helicopter and dropped off and took a bunch of Instagram selfies while you were oh. there, it's not the same because part of it is you cleared your soul while doing the walk to get there. It's yeah. the journey. The journey is part of the destination. How you got there primed your soul to receive that moment. Yeah, agree. It's uh, I'm going to go for a wild metaphor here and, uh, and go for a Will Smith movie. They're all good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. In, uh, the pursuit of happiness, where he finally gets to have like that amazing job after like struggle after struggle after struggle. And the way he describes it is like, it's there, it's that moment of happiness, but it lasts five minutes. It's not about the happiness. Like, it's really like about the journey and everything that you've endured that makes those five minutes like really, really special and intense. So yeah, I managed to manage a way to squeeze Will Smith in this podcast. I apologize. <laughs> well, we'll save that for my Will Smith rewatch podcast. <laughs> Slick Willie style. It's like the best beer you've ever had is the one after mowing the lawn or something like that. The best cup of water is after a really long trek and things like that. I, I want to switch over to the art a little bit because oh God, yeah. when you recommended this book to me years ago, I was like, okay, and I'd seen more than enough nature documentaries. I think I had just watched some David Attenborough thing about Antarctica. And I was like, how is this going to like depict the mountains and Everest in Nepal? And it's black and white. It's manga. How can it even, you know, I, I, I walked into this book originally very skeptical. How the fuck? Because the only manga I'd read was like Scott Pilgrim at the time or manga-ish <laughs> things, right? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, it. yeah. Well, <laughs> but it's like, I didn't believe that I could believe by reading this. And if anything, uh, never mind the illustrative qualities of Tanaguchi, but the, I think the black and white makes it better. Like, I don't want to see this. Like I, I watched the covers are amazing. And the first couple pages in color are great. And I have mixed feelings about the trailer and the animated feature, which I'm not sure if I want to watch, but uh, 
I there's something about the barren nature, even something about like the stark paneling of just square panels with square text narration boxes. Even the word balloons of the woos and the shh, those were a little distracting, but I was transported maybe because it was so singular. I didn't think it could be done. Like I didn't think black and white could move me the way this did. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's the same thing. Like you basically don't notice after page three that this is in black and white. You basically just want to turn page after page after page. And I don't know. I was trying to, to actually look at the drawings in, in more detail to see what's so great about them. It's like, it's so raw. And maybe the black and white adds to the fact that it's raw and, and, and adds to that experience. But it's just, you walk into that book and you absolutely feel like you're on Mount Everest. And there's one thing I think they managed to do really well, actually, is is the narrative, right? The narration in this book is almost essential to that because they take the time to explain to you what's going on in the head of the guy who's climbing the mountain, like become a machine, just focus on your movements, focus on your breath. It's also about the relationship that those guys have with the mountain. I think that makes it that immersive, but the drawings, it's just just like absolutely stunning. Like there's a level of detail for a guy who's using like one thickness of pencil. That's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting like cross hatching and fading that's happening. And I think the black and white is almost transportive, maybe because it feels like you're watching a documentary. <laughs> like it, It's like a little too cool for school. And you're like, oh, it almost like elevates how like some documentary like I think it's uh, Chris Nolan's first movie was a black and white and it feels so much more serious or Clerks is Kevin Smith's best movie. <laughs> like, is it the black and white that almost elevates it on purpose a little bit and makes it feel have the prestige. Uh, one other thing I noticed, and it's about the text itself. And I don't know if this is it's such a minor detail, but I'm noticing as I'm flipping through the page, the word balloons in American comics, be it narration boxes or word balloons, the words are really tight in the sense that the balloon is only as big as the words are. And Ryan, I've talked about like balloon placement traces your eye. And this guy has a mastery of that. But if you'll notice in all the word balloons, I would assume the French and the English versions, the the word, the letter counts about the same, but the words, the word clusters are just in the center. There's like a lot of negative space in the word balloon for the word balloon to sit. And I don't know if that's because in Japanese, they fill the whole balloon and English or Arabic letters take less space. But it, it added to this almost feeling of space as I read it. it. It let me, it forced me to almost sit with the words longer. And again, added to that prestige feel. Yeah, I agree. And there's another thing that I think is important is the shape of the text boxes. Because you're obviously in a world that's very vertical, right? Mm, um, and I yeah, feel you're like right. ha- having these boxes being vertical, actually, uh, maybe I'm over-interpreting here, but I think it probably adds to that dimension. It actually works really well with what they're trying to depict. But I feel like every single word that's in there is actually is mandatory. Like, it's funny to say, because it's a freaking, like, 1,500-page comic book. Oh, choiceful. 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 It's choiceful and intentional, I think. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, those vertical things that almost, now I'm getting a little stereotypical on um, Japanese, but it felt very Japanese. And I think, yeah, what we're touching on is, like, the entire book and the approach to storytelling feels really intentional, almost like zen. Like, everything is there for a reason. There's not much wasted in here, to your point, even in 1500 pages. 
everything is there for a reason. And I, I feel like I've been seeing this in recent years. I've been consuming more Japanese media, not because I like anime and manga, but it's just like I've been they've been falling in my lap, certain pieces of media that are very heavily steeped in Japanese culture and storytelling. And I, and I see that throughout. I don't know if having been to Japan a couple of times, I don't know if that necessarily translates to the full on culture, but in some of their art, it, it just really feels intentional and thoughtfully. Well, yeah, I completely agree. Like even in the, in the storyline, like there's nothing that doesn't have a purpose. You're not filling pages at any moment. Everything that they put out there everything that has been written is basically either going trying to tell you something in the moment or is being set for a longer storyline. And, yeah. and to me, that's almost a sign of excellence is like, there is nothing in there that's there without reason. And do you remember, uh, cause we're in a music club together as well. Yeah. And I uploaded an album about a, a Portuguese, a Brazilian singer named uh, Rodrigo Amaran. In his music, I, I feel the same thing, which is like every single note, every single instrument has a purpose and adds something. And in a very similar way, I've, I've been trying to find music that fills me as much as that. And I find it very difficult. Because I feel like sometimes people just put a guitar in there because, well, we have a guitarist. But it's, yeah, it's just, it's not exactly the same. And I, I think the experience you have with the book is legitimately that you feel like every page in there is valuable. I, I, I generally skip pages or, you know, try to skip the narrative once I get too much into the storyline. In this book, not at all. I read every single word. Well, I want to agree and disagree with you because the second read around... Some of the like motherfuckery of the Nepalese thieves and stuff at first, I was like, okay, come on, why are we wasting time on this? But again, all the plotting and the bribing and ooh, this camera must be worth something. There was so much payoff to it further in, right? Further in towards the end. Like there's the like gimmicky plot of Mallory's camera. And that's what, even though this book is really about Habu's and Fukamachi's personal journey and Mallory's camera and all the drama around it, which is the undercurrent that funds Fukamachi's ability to come back. And, but all the thievery and the motherfuckery at first was annoying to me, but you see it pay off in terms of his relationship, what these crooks were willing to do to literally harm people in Habu's circle. And then that brought on the very human job of what was the only thing that could force Habu, who's not a machine, he is a human, he does care about people, or he does feel responsibility to people, probably only after he got a guy killed on the mountain. But <laughs> every time shit like that happens, that brings Habu back to Fukumachi. So the motherfuckery of the thieves and the bribery while it felt superficial at the beginning, was really like laying the threads very subtly in book one and two, such that by the time you get to book four and the Gurkhas, which are awesome, by the way, like, you're like, oh, okay. Awesome. Yeah, but it, yeah. it's like, it's like, oh, well, okay, this a, didn't come out of nowhere. Let's put a slice of 300 in that manga. All right, let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, but it's funny that I have a completely different interpretation about that. And, and yeah. yes, you basically, because Habu doesn't have emotions or at least doesn't communicate them. Hi, Dad. And uh, and basically, he you you only get through the stories and how he behaves through the stories, what his moral code is, because we've been talking yeah. about him like a freaking maniac, but he still has a moral code. He's willing to save Fukamashi, even though he spent 10 years preparing for that one ascent. And the way I've seen it is I feel like there's also a little bit of history, English colonialism in that region 
and the scars it's left. And, and when they go into the Gorkas and when they go into the Sherpas yeah. and, and when they try to explain that and this sense of like almost caste in terms of how you relate to the mountain, mm-hmm. but also mm-hmm. the, like the level of poverty, it's, or the way they describe the Victoria Cross at some point, which is like, mm-hmm. oh, I got a Victoria mm-hmm. Cross and what has that brought me in life? Like, again, jack shit. It's like, oh, there's there's a sense of, of history about the country and about, yeah, I'd say, what has happened not just in the history of mountaineering but how going after those peaks yeah how going after those peaks for the british what's that actually meant for the people around and how it's changed the environment yeah the historical context is just as much a character um in this book Kathmandu, and as i alluded earlier the motherfuckery of the corruption but also like the honor of the gurkhas like it's just as much I don't want to say any one of those people is a necessary character, minus, say, the Sherpa, the main Sherpa, um, whose name is, escapes me. Yeah. But, like, the, a character, is, and I think good comics, it, it's even in, like, superhero, Hawkeye, which takes place in Brooklyn, like, when the setting is just as much a character, the mountains, are all of the mountains composite are a character. The backdrop of Nepal and the history of mountaineering and the colonialism baked into it is a character that you can't, and it's a historical character. Like you can learn something reading this book. I would, I don't know this, but I have to think based on how thoughtfully made this book is, is that all of that shit is historically accurate. These are facts that they are laying out. The only fiction is these two or three characters. Yeah, I, I can only agree with that. And do you remember what scene opens the book? I can flip to the page. I've got a mountain. <laughs> I, like, I like doing the sound effect for every issue or for every episode. <laughs> there. <laughs> but, no, but yeah. the, the opening, I think the opening page. It's Mallory. It's wrong. Mallory. But it's Mallory discovering a fossil. Mm-hmm. And obviously, who gives a shit? But he's discovering a fossil at like 8,000 meters. Again, translate that in feet for me. But like, he's discovering that high up. And you get that point of history of perspective that the mountain provides i think that's what they're trying to achieve with that scene which is basically show how big and powerful the mountain is and how absolutely irrelevant whichever man who has tried to summit it is in comparison to that yeah yeah and and i think that feeds your your point about the the mountains being its own characters and how important they are the scenes about the mountains being alive and the rocks falling and blah 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 i think i think they bring that to life magnificently so i want to close on a dark and not dark but like pissed off note so when we'd already agreed to do this recording and coordinating dates and then you're like oh it's an anime now and you sent me the trailer and it debuted at Cannes and the reviews are great Francois, I don't want to. I don't want to watch this. I don't want this translated to two and a half hours in color. Does that make sense? Like, I I want maybe a ten season HBO drama. <laughs> I want the wire of this. I don't yeah. think I can bring myself to watch it. Can, uh, are you going to? Well, first of all, it's ninety minutes, not even two hours and a half. Uh, so I'm like, fuck no. Like, how do you fit that in in ninety minutes? Yeah, the mountain and his wacky friend. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, it just. I don't know. I'm the same as you. And and when we started talking about ever doing that episode, I was complaining about comics have not influenced TV shows and movies enough. I feel like this book is actually absolutely perfect for, I, I don't know, like a, um, a Breaking Bad type of show or not even necessarily a Breaking Bad type of show, but like a Chernobyl HBO 
where it's like, okay, we have a storyline. We're going to do however many episodes need to. Oh, however long it takes to do it right. Do it right. However long it takes to do it right. And then we're going to stop. And I feel like this would actually be absolutely perfect for that. But I'm the same as you. I don't think I'm going to get the same experience watching a 90 minute movie about that. Or even if it's drawn and animated, it's just, I, I don't know how you capture everything that I feel about this book in 90 well, because, minutes. Because some of the feeling comes from the slowness of reading it. And I do think this is how I know I'm an old man who is a parent because I totally did this back in the day when I had to read a novel and we didn't want to read the novel because we were teenage punks who wanted to play video games or skateboard or whatever. We just go to the video rental store and rent the movie of The Great Gatsby, <laughs> you know? And <laughs> the, yeah, and like so, some of the books we've read on this podcast, I fundamentally believe should be required reading in school. And I think this should be, this is like required reading level shit that you should like talk about in a college course or something or in a high school course. And the fact that that, stupid movie again it's probably a good movie everyone seems to love it but and we'll put the trailer in the show notes i guess but like it would mean that some kid would watch the movie instead of reading the book and i don't think you should do that it might be good but you are robbing yourself of the introspection and the lived-in experience of just sitting with it for five five i'm gonna do it again volumes of comics massive pieces of work yeah i'm I'm like you well actually but i asked you the question about before we started recording in your list of everything that you've read like how high do you put this one it's it's hard like i don't i never want to do a one to 100 list i'd rather nah, just give it a score don't give me not, I, give me tiers or yeah exactly yeah yeah score. this is top tier this is top tier and when ryan and i set out to do this podcast we said we were only going to read top tier shit but we've had some stuff that maybe he loves that i hate or vice versa but we've also read some stuff together <clears throat> sword daughter that were by creators that we loved that was less than optimal this and there have been books. There have been books. There's one, an episode that just came out, Marvels, that when I read it, it was one of the best comics I've ever read. And it's up there still. But it wasn't as good the second time around. Um, this book was better the second time around. I was a changed person because I read it at a different phase of life. And I could read it with a different lens this time. And same thing with Marvels. But when I read it, when we were, Francois, you were a teenager and I was in my 30s when, <laughs> when we first read it. But like back then... It meant something significant to me at that stage in my life. In reading it now, it also felt significant. It sat with me. It bothered me. I thought about it. So uh, for that reason, this is one of the greats. And so much so that this is supposed to be a filler episode while Ryan's in Korea. And in preparation for the reread, I decided to read some reviews to refresh my brain. I was like, oh, shit, this really was one of the greats. And I almost wanted to postpone this so Ryan could read it. So I long answer to your question, I think it's one of the greats. It's in my top tier. And I've read a lot of comics across a lot of genres. I have not read nearly enough manga. I almost worry that is all other manga going to suck after I've read this. <laughs> what about you? How, how does this hold up in your tiering? Well, uh, on my side, obviously, I recommended it to you because it, it, it blew my mind when I read it. And it's very I difficult. You first read it, by the way. How, I joke about our ages, but like you were you were late 20s. I was early 30s when we met and I read it for the no, first no, no, time. No, no, no. When we met, I was early mid 20s. Let's make that clear. I was like, oh, 24. my God. <laughs> I was 24 when we first met. <laughs> so no, but and how the real question is, how old were you when you actually first read this? When you first discovered it? I don't think I was in college, so I was in okay. I was about a junior in in, in undergrad. So right, uh, late teens, early 20s. Yeah. Okay. How did you? Sorry, just to keep going. How did you discover this? Like, it's a Japanese book. I guess it had been translated into French. 
Yeah, it had been translated into French, into French, and uh, in France, there's this huge comic book festival every year that takes place, and it won a ton of prizes the year it came out. I was I was too young at that time to be following this, but my my aunt or aunt, I forgot how you say it in American. My aunt just brought that to me once as a gift, and she was like, "Just so we're clear, this one you have to give it back to me. Like I'm I'm lending you this, but." Some, some books I wouldn't care if they stayed in your library. This one I wanted back. And I remember going through that and I was just like, the, the first thing I did was I'm giving you the book back. I'm buying it for myself and I'm buying book two, book three, book four, and book yeah. five. I didn't need to read book two to know I was going to read book three. And and funny enough, we talk about like how top tier this is. or, or For me, obviously it's up there. But the thing I think is amazing is I think you can probably find something in that book. It's so rich in terms of the number of storylines, but you could probably, from the age that you're, I'd say 15, all the way to, I don't know, we'll figure out how it is when I read it at 50, but it ages really well. And at 15, you might get into the actual plot of the camera and Mallory and who climbed the mountain first, which we didn't even talk on this podcast because we think it's like absolutely secondary type of storyline because we're old men (laughs) we're old men some older than others but yeah and then yeah and i think you can get into that how epic early stages in life and i think to your point the the in later stages in life it can actually teach you a lot about yourself which is why i for me it's it's absolutely top-notch like a book that i've been able to read for 15 years and actually gave me different layers at each life stage where I've read it, I think is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, so I agree yeah, with I you. I'd make this mandatory. Just make it mandatory. Screw, I don't want to say The Great Gatsby, but like you can find something you can replace Well, I, I do think that's something Ryan and I are discovering on this podcast is not all the greats hold up. And this one clearly does. So, wow, I think other than the plot itself, we've covered a lot of territory, <laughs> Francois. I'm, and I'm glad this was an excuse to bring us back together because this is one of the, the first moments in our friendship that I knew you were a cool dude when yep. you recommended this weird Japanese manga about mountain climbing. Well, so, it, uh, takes me, it takes me back to uh, random coffees around the office but pretending to sell yogurt. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to the next super nerdy, super too cool for school book that we get the chance to read together. And maybe, I don't know, reading this again when you catch up to me in age. And, and thank you so much for inviting me on the pod and, and sharing this experience. It's uh, an absolute pleasure. I felt honored, to be honest, that you invited me to, to one of your podcasts. This is, this is the podcast no one listens to other than our Auntie Pinky. So it's all good. Okay, so I'll take the off. <laughs> uh, thanks. <laughs> okay, <laughs> point, point made. Point made. I'm going to go back to drink on my own. That's cool. Yeah, Likewise. Just a, a big thank you. And if anyone is listening to this, please go ahead and, and read it. It's, it's amazing. Run, don't walk. Climb. Climb. Climb the mountain of Summit of the Gods. Yep. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what Ryan got wrong at qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old, and that feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe.
I'll be back. He's still in my head. <laughs> I'm here. Demon, be gone. 